As we continue on in our Revelation series for the next couple of weeks, I think it's important to remember during this Advent season that we look forward to his second coming because of his first coming. And it's oftentimes easy to separate these two events so much so that we view the first coming of Christ as this gentle little baby in a manger and everything was uh, peaceful and calm and serene like what we see in the media's portrayal oftentimes of the the birth narrative. Uh, And then we look at Revelation and it seems like a completely different God. Let me just say that the first coming of Christ was not gentle, meek, and mild. There was genocide in an effort to get rid of him from almost the moment he stepped foot on this earth. We tried to kill him. And he came even in spite of that, and throughout redemptive history has given us time and time again to turn to him and to turn from our sin. And we read in Revelation about the culmination of the character of God where he brings grace even in the midst of justice and wrath. And we've said too that this is a very difficult book to understand, but the overall message is simple, and that's Jesus wins, and that gives us strength to endure. And because Jesus wins, those who are far from Christ should read this as a warning, a very simple message. We've said that we need to engage, to not daydream or let our minds drift, that this book, everybody says they want to learn it, but when you get down to actually studying it, it's difficult. But we need you to engage. Because this book is, I think, the ultimate portrayal of God's grace and mercy, that he had the grace to tell us what is going to come, how his second coming, how how he's going to come, and what's going to happen when he does come. So we jump right back into this pause in the story where John hits the pause button at various times and looks at the different personalities, the characters in the story, and then oftentimes we'll hit the same pause button to look at the future coming of Christ. He'll talk much about judgment and wrath and what Christians will have to endure in terms of persecution, and then he'll hit the pause button to say, but this is what you can expect, saints. Even in the midst of all this suffering, know that it's coming back. He's coming back, and that matters because we might be alive when these events transpire. And we too will want to see, as we're looking at these events in scripture that we read about in Revelation, we could see them happening around us and among us. And then we're gonna want that pause to see that he wins. And even in the midst of our temporal sufferings and trials from day to day, to to read these pictures of Christ and let it move us to worship. So we read Tonight, three chapters with seven visions, and we're introduced to some new characters, namely the woman, the dragon, the beast, and the lamb. John here is, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's pulling back the curtain of everyday circumstances to show us realities that all of our struggles to follow Jesus are tied into a cosmic spiritual battle that we are at war, that we're all a part of this spiritual battle. We are either with God or we are against him. There are no fence riders with God. There are no bystanders. We saw that there were ones who were uh, very combative and antagonistic towards Christ. 
uh, who were receiving wrath out of God's grace to get their attention that they might turn to God during this time period. But many of us are passive. We choose to make very little of God and think that by that, how could we in any way be an enemy of God? But there's only two sides. We're with God or we're against him, even if our uh, rebellion against him is passive. We can summarize the first chapter that we'll read tonight, chapter 12, and here it is. Satan will be conquered by Christ and by Christians who suffer. We've seen that theme come up that in our suffering, there's strength because we communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in living color through our own suffering, especially these believers in Revelation who are dying for their faith, being tortured and marginalized and oppressed for their faith. What a picture of Christ and his suffering for us. And there's power in it, even though it appears like weakness. So let's dive into these seven visions and various personalities. Uh, The first vision, Satan is conquered through Christ and by Christians who suffer. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snapped up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Once again, as a side note, we see the word like communicated often through Revelation because John is communicating a divinely inspired vision given to him and he's trying to describe it with a limited human vocabulary. So whether all of these are literal events that will happen or they're figurative of real events that will happen, the message is the same. I want to repeat one verse here just to to bring some clarity as well. In verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. We see a similar description in Genesis when it's describing the dream that Joseph was communicating to his brother, where all Israel would bow down to him. Some of the exact same verbiage is used. So I believe that this is talking about God's people, the nation of Israel. And uh, I'll say, again, as a side note, that uh, our Catholic brothers and, t- uh, brothers and sisters, at least some priests and theologians uh, who are from, again, the Catholic tradition, will teach that this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they'll say that because it, uh, there's language used like the crown of 12 stars on her head, that that is the reason why 
She is sinless. And I want to say that why we love our, our Catholic brothers and sisters, they don't, it's easy to think, well, don't they believe essentially the same thing we do? And they do not. There are some very key theological differences that actually many brothers and sisters throughout history have died for. I mean, it's, it's a big, the differences are a big deal. And where the differences stem from is our view of Scripture. You see, Catholics lean very heavily on church tradition and the Bible. So there's really nowhere else in Scripture that you can point to to look at Mary as divine or perfect. But they look at this verse and a couple of others that are taken out of context, and then mainly church tradition. That's when Martin Luther came along, right? The, the founder of the Reformation. And he was in the Catholic Church, and he said, he protested, rather, this thought that we, we perceive truth, we discover truth through the word and a church tradition. And he preached a message called sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's where we get divine authority, not that and church tradition. That's the way the apostles did it. That's the way the prophets did it. That's the way the early church did it. So uh, I want to say that, again, not to throw our Catholic brothers and sisters on the, under the bus or create, to create divisiveness, but there, there is some poison in the punch that you need to be aware of, and namely this, what they call Mariology, this idea that Mary was perfect or sinless. That is, that is blasphemous uh, to say that. Only Jesus was perfect. Uh, so I say that just as a side note in case for those who have studied this book. Uh, so who is this woman? Again, it's almost universally accepted that the woman here represents Israel, and when these events transpire, it will uh, represent all of God's people because we're grafted in. Because we see language like 12 stars, 12 tribes, again, pointing towards Israel. Uh, so God's people will flee from the dragon to the, uh, to the desert. And we see this description again elsewhere where this will be the great exodus in verse 5 and 6. The final exodus where God's people will flee the enemy. And then uh, verse 2 then is referring to the people of Christ not to the actual physical birth of Christ, in my opinion, but it denotes the travail of the community from which the Messiah has risen. Okay, that the fact that we're gonna go through trials, we're the community of Christ. And finally, we have the dragon or Satan that's revealed in this section. And we know that Genesis 3 records the fall of man, how the serpent entered the scene, and that right off the bat, we see the Messiah wins. He crushes the head of the great serpent, the devil, we see that all throughout Scripture as well, God's people and the enemy fighting in this great spiritual battle, and we see it in HD clarity and revelation. Christ is, of course, the, the victor, and uh, we see that he wins throughout Scripture. We see that even after the fall, uh, God's people were murdering each other, and God prevailed in his commitment to uh, sustain this vision that the Messiah would win even though we blew the deal through our choice to sin. All kinds of attacks, even as Abraham and Sarah remained barren, and they were the ones who were given the promise that you're going you're to receive many people, a nation of God, and a place, a kingdom. God prevailed, even in the midst of the consequences of sin that we chose. Uh, we see it through the Exodus, when God's people ran from slavery and oppression, and God provided for them by parting the Red Sea. And we see David stonewalled by many different pagan nations in his own sin, but God promises to bring a better king on a permanent throne who would not be thwarted. 
And then we see the death blow to sin on the cross where the great serpent would be defanged in uh, chapter 12, verse 10. John says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's Satan who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. From the beginning, God promised to send his son to defeat evil. And isn't it great, as Kimball said during worship, that now, or I think this might have been the prayer time at five o'clock, I think it was then. Yeah, the prayer time, not Kimball, even though Kimball's awesome. It was the prayer time before church, which you should come five o'clock up in Asia's Hope, Asia's Hope Space. Uh, just a shameless plug there, real quick. Uh, but we, isn't it great that we now look back on Jesus, on the incarnation of Christ, when he came into this world as a baby, lived a humble life, and he died a criminal's death on the cross, was obedient even unto death, and died once for all of our sins. He became sin for us, then in three days, he rose from the dead. Isn't it great that we look back on that now? And because of his resurrection, we read here in the second part of verse one of chapter 12, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. That means that we will reign with him. Because again, we're, it's given this picture of royalty with crowns uh, and stars here. We'll reign over the new creation with him. We read about uh, uh, elsewhere in Revelation, the new earth. And this crown room of God, this place of sharing with him in authority. And we won't become divine like he is. We won't become God, but we will reign with him as co-heirs. You know, now we reign with him spiritually. We can enter into the throne room of grace with confidence in our time of need, Hebrews says, but, but we will reign with him physically when he comes back. Isn't that awesome? And then through Christ's finished work, we're also told that we defeat the enemy along with Jesus. This is key, verse 11. They, that, they as believers, triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We see this is super significant. It means that we're not battling, this is very key, we're not battling for victory. We're not somehow earning it. We're battling from a place of victory, a foundation of victory. And that's very important. That means every sin and struggle we have, we don't have to battle for victory. We already have it. We simply have to claim what we read here, that Jesus has already won, and we share in his victory. And we reign with him now positionally. We'll reign with him experientially when we see him face to face. You see, the problem today is that Jesus has won, but his victory is not fully enforced yet. We see this victory of, we see this uh, uh, positional victory not enforced after World War II. After World War II, Nazi Germany never, it did not have a sovereign claim to allied land. They didn't have it. They were defeated. They were officially, legally defeated. But there were still some very committed to the Nazi regime who hung back and fought. And they could still you know, make a stir, maybe, maybe pop off a few shots, some small explosives. And I suppose that if someone wanted to, they could go to those dark alleys and those back rooms and be indoctrinated and be deceived or maybe even be shot at, killed. 
And so it is with us. Our enemy is defeated, but we can still mess around with him and kiss, kick the wasp nest, so to speak, but we've got to go to those dark alleys and those back rooms of deception. We don't have to fight for victory because Jesus has already won it. We need just to walk in it and claim it. And one day the victory of Christ will be fully enforced when what we're reading about takes place. I need to make this crystal clear. Our enemy is defeated legally by the cross and the resurrection. We still must deal with this defeated foe for a time, just like we sung about. But we're not weak and spineless in this battle. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in us. We see we observe in this section tonight that the saints are not shrinking back even in the face of death. What the enemy and his followers view as a defeat will actually be their demise. Because when Satan attempts to strike down the church through suffering, what he doesn't realize is we share in the suffering of Christ when that happens. And we share in his reign and in his glorification. Suffering makes us stronger, especially the suffering we read about here. Because we know that the message of the Bible is to die as gain for the kingdom of God. So now we move on, and I promise I'll move through the rest of these a lot quicker. That was the longest. The second vision. Satan works through the government as divine authority instead of under divine authority. Let's read about it. Verse 1 of chapter 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw remembered a leopard, resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who is slain from the creation of the world, Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So the enemy will have a specific tool of war that he'll use during this time of tribulation, and it'll be the government. The government will play an enormous role according to John's vision here, the Christ vision given to John. The beast here is this governing authority, again, in my opinion, opposing the church. And to this original audience, it was, they probably thought it was Rome, don't you think? They probably thought it was Rome because we've already said that emperor worship was required. So they probably thought it was Rome, but later interpreters defined this beast, this enemy of God, as the Antichrist. And there's several camps there. There's some who view the Antichrist as a group of authorities that oppose the gospel in culture. Others view it as an individual, but it doesn't really matter because regardless, um, 
uh, I think both of these lend to the same conclusion. That, again, and that is the enemy using the government as divine authority, not under divine authority. Do you see the difference? Romans 13 tells us the proper place of government, and that is it's under the authority of God, and it's used as a tool of God to bring order, and God's a God of order. But if we, if we use government as a divine authority, not under divine authority, we worship it. And that's what the enemy is using here. You see, that's always the enemy's deception is just to, yeah, government is good. Don't you want to fall in line with your government? All you have to do is worship it or him or whatever it ends up being. But regardless, we see this debauched, idolatrous government here. It's under God's authority, whether it wants to be or not. And that's very important to remember, that no matter what we go through, whether we walk through these, this time period, this coming time period, or whether we walk through trials where it seems like those in high places are having their way. The right and pure and beautiful picture for sexuality that God gives us in the Bible resisted and even seen as evil and bad and oppressive by more and more in authority. Or maybe it's more directly related to you where you have felt specifically oppressed or marginalized by ones who have power. Regardless, it may appear like they're the ones in charge, but they are under the sovereignty of God. We read that in verse five, chapter 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. Notice it was given authority for 42 months. This Antichrist figure did not take authority. It was given authority. Verse seven, it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Again, God gave them the authority. Why is God allowing the trial? We will probably never know, whatever that trial is for you. But if this happens, this is one where we do know what happens because God in his grace specifically spells out what's gonna happen in the end. When all hell breaks loose on earth because God allowed it, will allow it rather, we know that he's in control. I love that. You never find one place in all of Revelation where it says anybody took authority. It was given to him by our Lord and Savior and King. These demonic forces allied with the government will only be given what God allows them. So the message for saints is simple. No matter how much authority it seems that... Uh, one has, no matter how powerful they may seem, God's in control. And your suffering's not in vain. You operate from a place of victory. You are not battling for victory. You walk in victory. And that's one of the deceptions of the enemy. He wants us to think that we have to work for victory. No, we walk in what is already rightfully ours. That means when we face trials and temptation, we remember God's word. We remember what we just read. In chapter 12 and 13 of Revelation, we read those words out loud and we claim authority. So now we need to move on quickly here. I'm getting carried away to the third vision. We have seven and I have 10 minutes and then five grace minutes. Um, so the third vision, the beast will deceive through teachers who seem legit. This is why it's important, brothers and sisters, 
we got to learn to think. We got to put this thing down. And we got to read and we got to pray and we got to think. We got to think hard and we have to engage with the message of the Bible that is increasingly and fervently and progressively more attacked as time goes on. So the third vision, the beast will deceive through teachers who seem legit. Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 13. Then I, John, saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So now we see what is essentially the evil, dark Messiah. That's who this is. He... he, perform signs and wonders, people will think that this individual or entity, whatever, is good. Many will think it might even be godly in a pagan sense. But what does verse 11 say about this beast, this person or group opposed to God? Let's read it again. Read it again. Track with me. Track with the word. Let's learn here. Let's worship the God with our minds. Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. So what did this beast look like? It looked like the lamb. It looked like Christ. The enemy can look like something good and even holy. And if we don't know the word of God, we will be deceived. We wanna serve God. We gotta have callous hands, a soft heart, but a mind that's hard and disciplined around the word of God. The enemy has been saying from the beginning to us throughout history, to God's people, no, you're confused about what God is asking you. See, in the very beginning in Genesis, God says to Eve, so so God's told you you can't eat from any of the trees? And he says, no, 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 no. He just told me I can't eat from this tree. See, he tries to cause confusion that the enemy says, God's trying to take something good from you, not trying to give good to you. That's big deception. The other is, hey, he tells Eve, uh, well, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you'll be like him. Don't you want to be God? And this beast surely will say, this, this government authority or person will say, follow me and I can make you powerful like me. Don't you want to be God? His attacks don't change, just the context. It was fruit in the garden, but in the future we're reading about, it'll be worshiping whatever government authority as if they were God before the second coming. Now for you and I, it it, it may be a comfort. The enemies might be saying, 
Don't you deserve a break? Our God might be comfort. Hey, why don't you grab your phone and look at these things that you know are going to destroy, that we know will destroy our soul, but, but the enemy says to us, look at these things and they'll bring you life. They'll bring you a little relief. Don't you deserve that? Does it really matter if you just take a moment? You know you can ask for forgiveness anyway. God asked too much of you, of you. Or you would be so much happier. The enemy might say to you, you'd be so much happier if you focused on your appearance more. You would be worth more and others would think you had more value if you just looked a little bit better. If you lost some weight, if, you, if somehow you just had the perfect hair or the perfect body, you would be worth something. The point is that life will not be easy when we battle idolatry but it's worth it. We also notice in the last verse here that the biblically incomplete number of 666 is given to those who rebel against God during part of the Lord's future plan. We saw in the first three chapters of Revelation that uh, God's people are given a new name. We'll see here in just a few moments that they, they receive a name on their foreheads that, that symbolizing that they're God's people, but there'll also be a symbol of some sort that will mark the bodies of those who don't follow Christ, and they won't even be able to engage, uh, or, or rather there'll be a mark of those who don't follow Christ that will make it to where saints will not even be able to engage in commerce. They won't be able to buy or sell. Again, making the line between Christ follower and those who don't believe in Christ even thicker. Because it's gonna be very hard to survive for these people. It could be us. So we can see this mounting vision of suffering for the believer and the non-believer looking at it and saying, hey, look at all the authority and the power and the resources I can gather together. And look at these dumb Christians foolishly following a false god. Look, they're dying. They're literally, half the earth's population had been wiped out. Many Christians had been martyred. And this, this beast, this government authority is going to be offering protection to those who worship him or it. And saints are going to be martyred. So the fourth vision, I got to move here. The fourth vision, another pause looking towards the coming Christ. Another pause looking towards the coming Christ. Again, because believers at this point are going to be thinking, my goodness, look at how much I've lost. And the saints that... John wrote to, certainly they had lost so much at the hands of Roman authorities. It says in verse one of chapter 14, then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. See, identity for those who know Jesus. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God in the land. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Remember, we said that Revelation is written with descriptions of judgment and, and persecution for God's people with pauses where visions are provided of the future coming of Christ to help them withstand suffering and persecution. 
Again, 144,000 here just represents God's complete number of people. It's not literal, and we've already spent time describing why it's not in a previous message. And uh, for time's sake here, I feel like that vision's much like other ones we've read throughout the book. And I really do want to get through the whole book through this series. I want you to read every word because it says there's a blessing for those who read it and understand it and apply it. It's the only book that does that. I want that blessing. And I want you to have the opportunity to get it here on Sunday night. So I do want to get to every word. So I'm reading a lot more scripture than I normally do, but go figure, reading the Bible at church, you know. Um, so if, if I'm reading too much scripture, then uh, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you're just going to have to hear a lot of scripture. So fifth vision. Who we worship on earth determines who we, wor- who we will worship for all eternity. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I, John, saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed him and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Isn't this awesome? Even in the midst of suffering, God says he's going to send an angel who's going to make it clear to all those who remain on the earth what the gospel is, the saving message of Christ. This scorched earth, this hell on earth is still going to have heavenly messengers proclaiming the gospel just as they did when they came and announced the birth of our infant king. It's going to happen again. And we see this picture of Babylon the Great. Babylon throughout scripture is representative of the Tower of Babel that fell when people were trying to become like God. And then God came and destroyed it. And then people, uh, part of the curse was they spoke many different languages. So that brought confusion, which sin always does. So Babylon is always symbolic of uh, sexual immorality, of uh, material uh, uh, pursuits, selfishness, and all the rest. And we see here that all those who seek to find relief in the world and its ways, we see what will become of them in verse 10. So think about this. Even though God has provided all these judgments, and even though this mighty angel has literally, can you imagine? I mean, for those of you who uh, are involved in our campus ministry, you share the gospel. What if an angel would just read the gospel track for you? You know, they wouldn't have to read it because they would already know it, obviously. But I mean, that would add some power, right? So it's a pretty powerful testimony. So that's what the people of the earth will have experienced along with all of these judgments from God and still they'll rebel. So those of you who think if I could only get a sign from God, I would believe, I'll believe. That is a lie. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. These people will get sign after painful sign after glorious sign and still they won't believe. In a really short period of time, they're gonna get these signs. You don't believe, the reason you don't believe and follow Jesus Christ is because of sin. It's because of the deceptions that we've already talked about that somehow the enemy, we think that somehow God is gonna take something good away from us. But the Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift is from him. So turn your proud heart over to the one who made you and wants to save you. 
It says here in verse 10, these people, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. So the decisions you make today have consequences. It doesn't matter what you think about God. It doesn't matter what you feel to be true about God. It doesn't matter at all. Any more than it matters right now if you think you're in Ohio or Kansas. You can think you're in Kansas. It doesn't make you there. What you think about God doesn't matter. What's true about God matters. And to have one ounce of intellectual integrity means that you have to seriously explore, is the God of the Bible real? Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. The purpose and meaning of your life as God intended hangs in the balance. Do not be intellectually lazy if you're not following Christ. Engage and study it and ask people who love Jesus and learn the arguments for why the Bible and the Christian faith can be trusted. I'm not gonna finish. I'm not gonna finish it. Uh, All right, we're gonna move on to the sixth vision. Uh, So just to say in closing on that point, who we worship now matters. In our lives, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our resources, our thoughts, that's truly who we worship. All right, closing in on the end here. Six vision, God will bring all to himself. Verse 14 of chapter 14. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who is seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into a great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So judgment quickly comes to a close for those without Christ. It says the blood of those who remained opposed to God despite countless warnings and signs of wrath, including most of the earth's population gone and natural resources such as the water, the light of the sky, and the earth, the ground, decimated. But despite all this, they remained rebellious. So God's wrath came down in a flash and it says blood was as high as a horse's bridle. That's feet, not inches. For 1,600 stadia, or in in our measurements today, 180 miles. I don't know what that's gonna look like exactly or how literal that is, but the point here is simple and sobering. If you don't know Christ, don't play religious games with eternal realities. Don't listen to the 15-minute message you got in your class from a professor you respect and base your entire eternal destiny on one man or woman's opinion. Find out the truth. For the believer, once again, don't toy with sin and cry out and celebrate his victory through trials and temptations. And I'm only three minutes into my grace period, by the way. So I can finish here within my allotted time. 
Vision number seven, the end of wrath. 15 verse one. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who have been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the land. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So these persevering saints are singing the same song recorded almost verbatim in Exodus chapter 15, where the Israelites miraculously escaped from slavery through God's intervening hand. We see once again this picture of Exodus fulfilled through Christ and ultimately and forever celebrated here. Can you imagine what it's gonna be like to be with these saints who've suffered so intensely in his name? Can you imagine what the, it's gonna be like? I don't know if any of you got to go to the Ohio State-Michigan game, but if you've ever been to a big game like that and you hear the, the sound, you know, it just makes your heart skip a beat. It's, it's because there's something there that is being glorified all at once. Thousands and thousands of people glorifying something, praising something all at once. And we're gonna have all of these heavenly creatures and these angels and all of these saints who have suffered intensely from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the glory of our king will be spectacular. Our exodus will end, and as the smoke of God's fury rises from the earth one final time, we'll see that ripped away like wrapping paper in the new earth that was meant for us all along before sin into the picture will enter in, as we'll read here in the next week or so. And you know, we didn't get to this this week. I said we would, but we're going to have to wait till next week of how we really can, we can worship God in his wrath. So stay tuned next week. We worship God in his grace and in his mercy, but there, there is also this aspect of his character that we call judgment and wrath. And we can worship him. We can delight in him even in that. And we'll learn how next week. But I want to plead with you. Again, if you're a believer and there's sin in your life, just decide decisively right now. I'm turning from it. And pray with somebody. You can pray with somebody up here on the prayer team, uh, somebody you know who brought you uh, or who, who you trust here. If you don't know Christ and you're here and you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus, man, good for you. Thank you for coming. We prayed for you. Pray for you every week, not knowing your name, but, but praying for those who come who are still exploring their faith. Turn, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. It's a simple prayer. It's a simple process that even a lot of uh, seasoned folks with a lot of education, with a lot of resources, find hard to pray because our hearts are proud, aren't they? And it takes that disposition of a child that says, I, I need to be rescued I need you, Jesus. And you can learn more about that by, again, talking to somebody who knows Jesus, who brought you, who you're connected to here, or, again, come up and talk to somebody on the prayer team. Lord, we pray that you would seal this message. It's a heavy one, but it's one that you give out of your grace, Lord, and it's one where we see, man, sin is a big deal to you. It's a big deal to you, and you want to allow it to be used in such a way that it humbles us and brings us back to you.
our maker and our savior. We worship you in Jesus' name, amen.